Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. Carson Sestouli. What follows is another weekly installment with Kyla McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. He is the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, making, in this case, his weekly Friday appearance in which he discusses and analyzes all prospects. Of particular note, uh, this week we discuss, uh, perhaps not in great depth, but we also do not entirely ignore uh, McDaniel's write-ups both for the New York Yankees Baseball Club their prospects, and also the Atlanta Baseball Club, uh, their prospects. We address some concerns relating to them. We consider Kylie's methodology for ranking minor league systems. If one system has uh, one or two high-ceiling prospects, but a a second system has uh, three or four prospects who profile to be average or above, how do you deal with that? Kylie addresses that uh, conundrum in what follows, in a discussion uh, which occupies probably the greatest portion of uh, the following audio. Concerns college baseball. It's uh, it's beginning uh, right here at the beginning of February. This is uh, this is uh, it's starting to happen on campuses. The actual games occurring in within a couple of weeks. I have a number of questions, very naive questions about college baseball. Kylie answers them patiently and competently. One last note, as he does every week, Kylie McDaniel this week has provided a musical interlude. It's a musical interlude. I believe it's from a very recent album. Very recent album, and the track in this particular case features Big Sean and Drake. May or may not be true. Um, I think it's true. It's Fangraphs Audio. It begins right now. Thank you. I really want to record your end of this conversation, but I didn't turn on the recorder. <laughs> what it do? Excuse me. Did you uh, did you say what it do? What it what it do? Okay. <clears throat> what it do, Kylie? Ah, uh, well, you know, it do. It do. Hold on, let me uh, let me put in the old headphones here so you get a increase the quality of the audio. Yeah, well, the uh, the audio says pretty good already. Very very happy about it. Hey, can I ask a question? No, just statements. Oh. Just kidding. All right. All right, one question. Should, <clears throat> was someone in your Someone in your chat today asked you about Chipola College. Yes. Chipola College. And I don't I never I never heard of that school before. It seems like it could have vaguely Spanish roots, Chipola. But I don't know what is it in the United States? Uh, it's in the panhandle of Florida. Okay, which someone is where said there's a lot of uh we'll say Indian inspired names, such as Tallahassee and Seminoles. Oh yeah, sure, right. <laughs> Yeah, right. That that whole team named after the Seminoles, the school. Yeah, I don't know if that's what it's named after because the city is Mariana, Florida, so it's not named after the city. I don't know what it's named after, uh, but it is. It's probably if you go over like the last twenty years, maybe the most like notable JC for the draft. Okay, Chipola College, and because someone said, should I make the trip? It's uh, there might be a couple of uh, top three rounders. Yeah. The so, uh, well, yeah. So the short version is Mac Marshall, the guy that was ensnared in the <laughs> Brady Aiken Jacob Nix thing with the Astros. He was the third guy that was gonna get the money that they saved if they signed Aiken. But since they didn't sign Aiken, they didn't save the money they would have given to him. He was he went to LSU for like three weeks and then transferred to Chipola because he wanted to be eligible this year. Okay, right. So now that's is that why guys is that why a guy will go to a junior college then? Yes. To retain eligibility for the draft. 
Yeah, to be eligible the next year. I guess in the past it had been, uh, especially guys uh, that had Boris that had already played three years in college. Uh, some of them would go indie ball, but I don't think any notable player has gone to indie ball in years now. It's typically junior college, and then now this year, uh, IMG Academy uh, down in Bradenton, just south of me, where I used to be in Tampa. Right. Uh, they have a high school team that I think just got accredited last year, so they get to play like high school teams in Florida. They just added a postgrad team. Uh, and last year, Austin Dakar, who we talked about, I think in the last episode, was a postgrad guy at a school in Connecticut. Uh, now Jacob Nix, the other guy from the whole uh, Aiken thing, is at postgrad at IMG, and I'm told that Brady Aiken has not announced anything, but it looks like he's going to end up on that same team in Florida as postgrad, which means they're playing mostly junior college teams, which is even a higher level of competition than the, than the high school IMG team will play. That's interesting. You mentioned the postgrad. Um, I happen to uh, my, my wife and uh, happens to teach at, and I live at a school in New Hampshire that um, that has uh, postgrads, and they play a lot of other basketball teams. Postgrads are utilized, it seems, mostly for the basketball, and you find a lot of basketball talent in the area because of that. Yes. Uh, does that happen in baseball too? Uh, yeah, uh, Javier Baez went to Arlington Country Day in Jacksonville mm-hmm. that I believe at that time was not accredited, so it couldn't play high schools in Florida. It wasn't technically post-grad, but I know a lot of these sort of basketball programs are sort of like can't get the grades to go to a big college, and so they'll go spend a year and get their grades right, and sometimes it's a little dubious. It, yeah, Obviously not the same as a post-grad, uh, but sort of a extra high school kind of thing. Right. So uh, were they like repeat their senior year essentially? Or just maybe not looking great as a junior, they'd like to have the signability uh, uh, leverage to have good enough grades to go to a big school, and so they'll go to one of these schools, which I believe Arlington Country Day got accredited, or whatever the term is, for allowed to play the high school teams in the last couple years. Uh, But apparently when Javier Baez was there, they were like barnstorming. Like they would just go to out-of-state tournaments, they'd go to Puerto Rico, like they'd go anywhere they could go to get a game. And that they were, you know, mostly doing baseball during the day, and they do some classes obviously also, but not as much as you would at a traditional high school. Okay. But it it doesn't sound like like it's as common for kids to do – like a more typical PG year, like you might find, because I know that some. Yeah, kids... no, that that was one of very few examples of a thing like that. And the postgrad thing, I don't think there have been many players to do that, other than every three or four years there'd usually be a guy up in the Northeast or at Exeter or something like that. And those guys often would go to college. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that's the thing, maybe, and maybe it's just there's like an infrastructure in New England for it, but not as much outside. Does that make sense? Yeah, and also for basketball, like you typically, if you want to go pro, you need to go to college. Although some guys will go to Europe or China or whatever. Right. Whereas in baseball, you don't have to. So it's not like a huge race to get good grades, which I think is typically the allure of a post grad mm-hmm. thing. Ah, very good. Yes, interesting. Right, right. That's right. Um, that would make that would make sense. Yeah, I guess that's interesting. I went to because I I taught for a while at a school in um, called Mount Hood Community College, just outside Portland, Oregon. And there was a kid who was drafted while, while I was there. And I said, oh, you dra- you were drafted? He said, yeah, I was drafted. <laughs> How, what, for what, baseball? Yeah. It sounds like a great comment. I would have loved to hear that whole comment. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, for real baseball? And he said, yeah, for real, real baseball. I'm just, I said, oh, that's pretty good, good job, buddy. Uh, but I guess – Was that his name? His name's Buddy? Yeah, his name's Buddy, buddy H. Buddy. His name was Buddy H. Buddy. First and last name, same. Is that the same as Jesus H. Christ? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, no, just the same middle name. Um, the, but so I guess this is a thing people will do is they'll go to JC. Is there any other reason 
for a young baseball player to go to a junior college besides uh, retaining his eligibility for the drafts? Uh, I mean, maybe you're not quite, you know, you get offered 50 grand out of high school, you'd like to get more, it's like an extra development, and you're, maybe you're not huge on academics, and so that's sort of your best development move, is to move up a level, and maybe, maybe go to a wood bat, uh, junior college, and I believe the ones out west, uh, like Arizona, New Mexico area, wood bat leagues, uh, yeah, the one Bryce Harper's in in Nevada, I believe, was a wood bat league, mm-hmm. uh, but most of them, I think, still are aluminum, or, but I guess now with the BB courts, not, still not that different, uh, of the BB core and the, and the wood bats. But yeah, I guess you can use it as a development thing. Some guys do that. I know there was a guy in Florida that was from the Bahamas as an 80 runner, but a little rough at the plate. Uh, I think he got offered like maybe 150, 200 and he opted to go to a junior college. And I think it's basically just to get his stock up a little bit. Not that, I mean, obviously he could have signed for that, but I think he thinks he's better than that. And if he can get a little, a little better with the bat, um, but yeah, I think I think it's seen as that a lot of times. Like a hundred thousand and under out of high school, I'll go JC for years. See if I can get a little extra. Okay, and then, uh, but guys also go for for example. I think I saw the catcher for LSU. His name is Cade Skivik. Skivik, yeah. Um, and he he came up when I was looking at uh, uh, top hitters from the SEC last year, and I think he had I think he had come from a junior college. Yeah, that's also another con because you'll see a lot of guys go a year or two to junior college and then catch on with a huge uh, four-year like SEC program or Big 12 or whatever and then play through the whole four years. Sometimes it'll be the equivalent of the guy that was offered 50 grand or 100 grand and but he was offered a scholarship to you know Louisiana Lafayette or something. He wanted to go to LSU. I'll go play at LSU Eunice, which is right next to LSU, and they sign players out of there all the time. And then if I get better in a year or two, then I'll get that spot, and I'll be able to know year to year. Like, I'm not going to come in as a freshman, and it turns out another guy's with me as a freshman. He's going to catch, and then I don't have a spot. I'll be able to sort of look at the depth chart each year and be able to make the best decision. And, you know, maybe Texas or Alabama or Clemson or whoever will come after me too. Okay. Uh, another question. Sorry, this is um, these are all sort of – these are logistical questions, but uh, I've never really bothered to ask them, um, and you know the answers, so I appreciate it. Um, uh, is there redshirting? Does redshirting happen in, in college baseball? Yes. It does. And in junior colleges, but very much less common for draft prospects. But for injuries, you'll see it. Like I had Shane Green uh, redshirted during Tommy John when he was in junior college. That's why he wasn't seen, because he basically got back on the mound right before the draft, so nobody saw him in the game. Oh, okay. And uh, I mean, is it as common as in football, for example? Uh, not as common, just because the it's like a tough recruiting pitch to say, oh, this guy could have signed for 150 grand out of high school. We're going to bring him to LSU and then not even let him play the first year. He'll just go somewhere else. Right. Uh, so it's yeah, it's not common, but it happens. And a lot of times it'll be really raw pitcher, guy that's hurt, you know, guy that wouldn't be able to hit his first year but has a lot of upside. So maybe you just you know get him some reps and scrimmages and stuff, uh, and you know, in game. I was going to say in games that don't matter, but I guess that would get rid of the red shirt. But, yeah, the idea is a guy that basically couldn't compete his first year but wants to be there and needs the three years and thinks that's his best sort of development path, you know, coaching-wise and things like that. Uh, but for draft prospects, it's usually only uh, injuries or they were terrible and they got really good, or like the two scenarios where you see a red shirt for a guy that's like a legitimate prospect. In, in, uh, in college football, there are certain programs, and I think of Alabama, for example, that have multiple players – Multiple, whatever, like five-star recruits, right? Like they'll have four running backs yeah. who could have gone to any program that they'd wanted to. I'm an Alabama fan, and I still don't get why they're getting all these players. Right. Well, it's a little bit strange because 
as some if you were one of those running backs then you have like roughly like one half or one quarter of the playing time you might elsewhere yeah um but they still but the many of these players still choose to go there and i'm curious is, does anything like this this sort of stockpiling of premium talent happen at all at any of the at the college programs to the same degree well, it changes because if you have a really good recruiting class, like I know my my last job, I did a lot of this sort of stuff because we were sort of feeding uh, to all the all the college content. If you have a really good class, until like the players get on campus, like you don't know who's going to get there. So you might have like I remember one year USC had like J.P. Crawford, Dominic Smith, Riley Unruh. Uh, they had, like I think they had a recruiting class of seven players, and like five of them were projected to go in the top three rounds. And, like, four of them went in the first round, and then one of them won too much money and got to campus, and they had, like, a recruiting class of three players. And then go look at another school, like, traditionally, until recently, Florida State was like this. They would, like, pride themselves on we never lose a recruit. We recruit ten guys, they all get here, and maybe three of them get drafted, but none of them are ever threats to sign. And they recently changed that, and I think they lost five guys in their last class. Mm -hmm. Uh, Florida is another one that they're a state school, and so in Florida – a lot of times you can basically get a free education at a state school, so they don't have to hand out scholarships. Whereas Miami is a private school; it's like thirty grand a year to go there, and you, they have to like scramble around to find like scholarships for these kids that are non-athletic because you only have eleven scholarships for the entire baseball team. Oh. Uh, so Florida can get basically whoever they want, and a lot of times if it's like a you know traditionally baseball is going to have the most sort of well-off upper-middle-class white kids as other sports. Mm -hmm. And so they get a recruiting class of like 16 kids, and eight of them they don't have to give a dollar to. Uh, and so I believe it was two years ago, their class that is now sophomores will be draft eligible in 2016. They brought in like 13 players, and they were like all draftable. And they might – and they, I, as far as I know, they've kept all of them. Like, And one of the things they were doing was uh, they had like I think like seven freshmen that were pitchers that were all either drafted or could have been drafted. And they would basically pitch six pitchers in every single game the entire year so that, it, you know, you can't transfer after they gave you 20 innings for a top 25 team as a freshman. And so they just made sure everybody got innings. And they lucked out that a couple of the guys got hurt, didn't really pitch. And some of them, they could, you know, start them on a Wednesday against North Florida or bring them in for mop-up duty on a Sunday for three innings and kind of get their work in. But they had too many players. Like, I, I remember I, like, kind of drew up a depth chart, and I was like, there's no way through normal usage patterns that you would be able to play all these players. And it's the same sorry, on the hitting school, side, too. What school was that, sorry? Uh, Florida. That was Florida. <clears throat> and so all those guys are sophomores now, and they have, I mean, they have a handful of, uh, we talked about, <laughs> Or I think I wrote about Richie Martin, their shortstop, uh, center fielder, Harrison Bader, and I think the Friday, probably be the Friday guy, Eric Handel. They have three guys that are like, you know, top five round guys for this year's draft, but they've got like a couple big time studs for next year, and they might have like, you know, seven or eight draftable guys all in that class, which is also what they had like four or five years ago. They had a class that was Mike Zanino, Brian Johnson, Preston Tucker, Nolan Fontana. They had like six legit, like, high-level prospects on a team that were all draft eligible, and it was all from the same recruiting class. Uh, so a lot of times those big schools, especially state schools, will, you know, go through phases where they'll just, you know, do well, do well, and then you get, like, a crazy, insane class and the challenge is to keep them all on campus, which I guess is similar to the Alabama football thing. Right. Well, I'm thinking now, like, of Kentucky versus Duke basketball, too. Yeah. Where, like, Kentucky tends to run into players who are – there's, like, you can have players who are too good almost – because they will be drafted immediately. 
Yeah, and that's that's the one difference with baseball is the super duper player doesn't get to campus generally. Like if a guy gets there that should have gone in the top fifty picks, it's because something happened or his parents are really rich. Or like Nebraska got Ryan Bolt who should have gone in the top fifty picks, but he uh hurt his knee and basically didn't play the entire spring. So teams weren't as confident to offer him that money and he kinda slipped through the cracks. Uh but I mean there's like one or two of those each year and they're spread all over the country, so nobody can consistently get those guys. Uh so they actually the the aim for college recruiters is as sophomores and juniors and sometimes freshmen in high school pinpoint the guy that is a fifth to eighth round prospect that has some growth but is already pretty good and hopefully is pretty well off and is emphasizing academics. And that's a really big challenge, especially when you've got, you know, schools like Stanford and Vanderbilt going across the country trying to find the guys that are really good, but they're also going to want a million dollars for, you know, whatever reason, and they can pick those guys up because, of course, the parents that are, you know, doctors or whatever and want, want their kid to go to school no matter what, they're going to pick those two schools just academically, and they also happen to have good baseball programs. So if you can't offer the in-state tuition like Florida and you're not Vanderbilt or Stanford, so you're not going to get the million-dollar price tag guy, you've got to, like, thread the needle with a guy talented enough to contribute for four years but not leave it's very difficult to do, and now all these kids are committing as freshmen and sophomores and maybe junior year, so you have to do it before they are who you think they're going to be, which obviously is a big challenge, which makes it a lot harder for the basketball. So Stanford and Vanderbilt's academic reputation helps them in their on, with regard to baseball recruiting as well. Yeah. yeah uh, okay. And I, I would say Duke also has the same allure – but doesn't have quite the same uh, baseball track record. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they'll the, uh, there's some other schools that are like that too. Like I know Texas can obviously offer some of that. Some of the you know better state schools that have bigger baseball programs can offer some of that same stuff. But those are the two sort of heavy hitters. Like I think Stanford didn't lose a recruit for like a 10 year period until they had a guy that signed in the second round a couple years ago with San Francisco, uh, Ryder Jones. And he was the only guy they had recruited that didn't get to campus in like a long time. And Vanderbilt will typically lose one or two guys. But they'll get like four or five premium guys every year for like the last five years, which you can see they're ridiculously loaded. Like they have a problem with too many good players right now. They have a guy that might go in the top five this year that didn't even crack the weekend rotation last year. And and which school was this? Vanderbilt. That's Vanderbilt. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Walker Bueller was their Tuesday guy, and he'll probably – I mean, he will pitch on the weekend. I don't know if it will be Friday or Saturday or Sunday. And he might go in the top five picks, and he couldn't even get one weekend start the whole year. Or maybe he got one, but he was the Tuesday guy I think almost the entire year. Oh, and they have too many good players. Well, they, yeah, they have had I, – I have only um, uh, paid attention to college baseball the last couple of years, but I know that they they had a team with, what, Tony Kemp and Conrad Greger? What? <laughs> you're, Wait, you're picking the wrong names. <laughs> no, they, but those guys are good. Yeah, no, they're good. Uh, Tony, Tony, Tony Kemp, Kemp is better than Greger. Right. Uh, Greger and uh, Tyler Beatty. Yep. And yeah, Young Young Beatty is his rap name, if you guys want to look up his, his rap on YouTube. <laughs> Wait, is it really? Yeah, it is. <laughs> People shouldn't do that. It, I, also, I also linked in Jacob Langren's report on the Yankees list to uh, to his rap outing, which I learned about while I was writing the list. I'll tell you what. There's nothing luckier than to have been born at such times when you could not um, you could not upload video of yourself to the Internet. When that, you're in high school. Right, yes. It, I'm that, very that lucky. That basically was like happening as I got out of high school. Like Facebook started right when I was in college. There's so I nothing, think I barely yeah. squeaked by. Because guess what? Um Young men, the majority of young men do not have, they do not possess sense. They don't have sense. <laughs> <laughs> and they just make poor, poor decision after poor decision. Oh, what's, what's the worst that can happen? Well, I could ruin your life. 
Preach it, Grandpa Sestouli. <laughs> it's not. It's just. It, no, it's true. I, I think it's actually. Wait, it's a neurological. It's a neurological fact. Sense does not exist in their brains. Um, I still have to do with their cortex or some. Prefrontal cortex doesn't yeah. uh, fully develop until you're 25. Yeah. Oh, there you go. See, Kyla McDaniel knows. Well, I'm over 25, so I was able to remember that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you had learned it before 25, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's really amazing. Um, well, I, li- I like this conversation. <clears throat> I have a, um, I developed. <laughs> I'm glad you want to put five stars on this one. <laughs> I've developed a, a sort of, especially around this time each year, because you know you get what at the beginning. I think uh, when next week starts. I think the uh, uh, Caribbean series begins right at the beginning of February. That and sounds then, right. And then college baseball is not too far off, right? A couple weeks, maybe three weeks. Hold on, I've got it on my. I've been making a schedule the last couple weeks. College baseball begins. Do, do, do. There we go, February thirteenth, Friday. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's, yeah, that's just like two, two and a half weeks at this point. Two weeks, yep. And I'm uh, right in the middle of SEC country, so I've got I've got access to a lot of different areas right now if there's the right matchup. That's yeah, and see that's fantastic. So, so I've developed this, especially living in a, a northern climate. Um, the the game itself played live seems very far off, and then all of, you know all of a sudden you arrive at the beginning of uh, middle of February, and then you used to. Well, these schools are playing baseball already, and it's not. I mean, they already are. I know what I'm talking to, you know, sending emails to scouts to talk about uh, their list or the top 100 or whatever. Like, I, like one of them said, uh, I got a scrimmage at South Carolina, and then I'm flying to USC for a scrimmage, and then I'll be back on the East Coast. And I was like, flying across the country just to go see a scrimmage at USC? That's, it's getting out there. But, you know, the national guys got to get around, and, you know, basically they need to, because you'll get to the point in the draft room where, I only saw this guy twice. Once he was terrible, so I've got one good look to go off of. You'd like your top scout to have more than that, right. and so they're crisscrossing the country, getting early looks at all these guys, trying to figure out which ones they want to prioritize. Right. Okay. Yeah. I just I, de- I developed a, a, um, a rational sense of the magic of these, this college baseball. Something about it seems very nice to me. I, do, do you enjoy going to the games? I understand you're probably working at some points, but is it? Uh, I mean, do you do you regard it? If, as a pleasant fan experience? Yeah. At Carson, I'm always working. Um, <laughs> the, the one thing that bothers me about college, which isn't their fault, but sometimes you'll go to a stadium that isn't necessarily set up in a scout-friendly way. And if it's, you know, especially like some of these bigger SEC schools, it'll be a sellout with, like, no open seats. Right. And so it'll be a challenge to get a good vantage point. And a lot of times, like, I've been to, I'd say, you know, most of the – sort of big school stadiums. I, I know the setup, like, oh, if I'm going to go see a game at Alabama, I need to sit either sit in this area or make sure I'm there a half hour early and can set my bag in this sort of walkway so I can have a good vantage point or else I'm going to be way too high to be able to tell what's going on. Um, so I, like I, hear a, that, I hear that you're often too high to tell what's going on. <laughs> is that true? Do I have to have my eyes open? Because I'm scared <laughs> by how big my hand is right now. Yeah. Are you my friend? Are you my friend? <laughs> Are you my friend? Tell me I'm allowed to leave this room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that <laughs> that's a good one. Right. So getting a good vantage point, like especially in the Florida State League, it's a spring training stadium that can hold seven thousand people, and there's never more than two hundred people there. Like it's super. You don't have to worry about what school is that? Know. No, I'm saying the Florida State League. Oh, oh yes, yeah, right. So that's like that's the easiest setup you can possibly have. And if you're doing like a midweek game or like a game at a place like Georgia Tech, where it's like 
maybe, you know, they'll they'll fill in for a Georgia or Florida State game, but they're not going to fill up when, you know, Boston College is in town, then that'll be easier. But if you're, like, at LSU or Arkansas or South Carolina or Florida, like, it'll get real tight back there. And some of them, like, Florida State's kind of notorious for – uh, it sounds like they've eased up in, in recent years, but they have like an enormous backstop. So like you're sitting at the height of what would normally be the 40th row in a minor league stadium is the first row, which you can't sit in. And then you're sitting 10 rows back from oh. that and you're off center and somebody might be booting you from the seat because they accidentally gave you a seat that's actually a, a you know, season ticket holder seat or whatever. And then I have a press pass, which doesn't have a seat. And so I'm trying to guess. Right. And it can be like, you know, why did I drive eight hours round trip to get a terrible view at a game I can't see? Right, and to have awkward interactions with numerous people. Yeah, and so that's yeah. why all – and then, of course, they're sitting next to you like, oh, radar gun. Like, oh, cool. Like, they want to ask you all kinds of questions, and you're sitting with, you know, like normal people. Yeah. So, like, I've been to Florida a zillion times, and I know they're set up, and uh, there's actually uh, – the scouts can go down into the backstop where there's a glass opening. So if there's ever a Florida game on TV and I'm there – I'll be behind the backstop, behind a glass opening in, like, the little basement dungeon area, and people have tweeted at me, is that you with your face up against the glass behind home plate? Oh, hey, does the glass affect the readings at all? No, although they have a gun down there, the one that uh, that goes to the stadium gun is down there. Oh, okay, yeah. But, yeah, scouts will bring their guns down. A lot of times I'll have video of players in the SEC that I take through the glass, and sometimes it'll get, a lot of foul balls will hit it, it'll get kind of kind of cloudy, Uh but it's the it's the best view. You're basically your your head is where like the catcher's feet are. And so if you move off to the side where there's not a hitter, it's like the best view you can get. But when there's eight people down there and you can't move around and the and the hitter's in front of you, you can't see anything. Yeah, so so challenging. So that's a, that's like a pretty decent setup and there's also like a concourse above that uh where you can, you know, you can see pretty well, but obviously if you're at a minor league game, you're not choosing to sit that high if you can sit anywhere. Right. Uh, so that's, that's the challenge with the college stuff. It's a better atmosphere. It's more fun. It's an unknown. It's exciting. It's you get to see the campuses and all that kind of thing. But the view can sometimes be a real challenge. Okay. Now I I want to ask another question too, um, and this actually dovetails with a, a recent post you did um, um, with with regard to some video from Ian Hap. Ian Hap. Yes, Ian Hap. He plays for what? Is it University of Cincinnati? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's. I think of it. Are they a baseball hotbed? Uh, no. No, I would think not. They'll have some like relievers and mid-round guys, but they and Kevin Euclid, I think. Yeah, and they had a guy this year. I want to say Connor Walsh, okay. but he was like I don't know, like seventh or eighth round or something. But yeah. yeah, they're they're a very sort of mid-tier, mid to lower tier of you know the schools you've heard of. It's not a baseball hotbed. Well, so. They, they feature they feature video from the Cape League frequently. It seems like they have an ex- what, they have an exclusive agreement. Is that true? We call it exclusive in the business. Uh, yeah. Exclusive, yeah. Um, but I'm also I also love the idea of these summer leagues, and uh, I'm curious. I have a vague idea um, how players. Um, of course, these co- collegiate wood bat leagues, Cape, the Cape League is the most prestigious of them. But I think Northwoods League is also pretty well known. Um, they're they're sorted others. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The big ones are Team USA and the Cape are the two big ones. Northwoods League is a solid sort of secondary place, and then there's a handful of two or three more depending on the year, like the California, Alaska, a couple other ones that are 
pretty solid. Right. Uh, but yeah, there's there's like 30 of them, and like 20 of them are not even worth checking out unless there's a very specific player that you're told go watch this player. Right. And I've noticed, and we might have discussed this before, like because w- w- I lived in a in a Northwoods League town, I would very frequently see a guy on a roster there in his freshman or sophomore year, and then see him on a Cape League roster his sophomore or junior year. Very normal. A lot, a lot of times the Cape will invite good freshmen to come, and the coaches don't want the guy getting, uh, you know, getting his confidence down or not performing well. So they'll send him to a mid-tier league as a freshman, low-pressure environment, and then they'll send him to the Cape as a sophomore so he can get sort of some pub for his draft year. Okay. Now, so how is that just all based on the relationship between the coaches in those collegiate woodbat leagues and the, the universities, or is there something else going on? There are typically sort of some pipelines between, like, Cape coaches and college coaches, and a lot of times they'll get guys – uh, before the scouts even know about him, because it'll be, oh, this guy at 95, uh, but he was a TJ guy that didn't throw during the year. He threw in some side sessions, and, you know, let's get him up there. Sometimes you'll have very small schools from the Northeast feed some good guys up there in junior colleges every now and then they'll send a guy to the Cape. Uh, but, yeah, it's they also miss some guys. And uh, people that listen to my old podcast in my last place where I had uh, Frankie Pilleri of uh, Perfect Game on, he lives on the Cape and is sort of – helps advise a lot of the different teams and because mm-hmm. he's now like the college guy for perfect game wait, is and so, he, wait a second is he still on the cape yeah oh okay all right and so he'll he's like hooked in with three or four of those teams and whenever either one of us sees a guy or we hear about a guy or you know in the fall or whatever he'll be like i need to get this guy on the cape because he obviously can see him as much as he wants to if they go to the cape so he'd like to get all the good players there right and we, he and i have both helped uh place a, a good number of players up there that may not have been up there otherwise because a lot of times they'll agree to go to a mid-tier league just to get a good assignment, and then the Cape comes in and the mid-tier league doesn't want to let them out because they want to have a good player. Right. So yeah, that, I have a very very small part, and I'll go, you know, I'll go see a guy at Florida International and be like, this guy's pretty good, and Frankie's like, yeah, I haven't heard of him, and I was like, he's better than that guy that was on the Cape last year, so maybe tell that coach, you know, dump that guy and get this guy, and then everybody will make a few calls and be like, yep, you were right, we're gonna get this guy, and I'll be like, thumbs up, everybody and then wins. Frankie gets to see him. Yeah, you get to see him like 30 or 40 times, so we get a pretty good idea. what's. And then also you get to interact with the guys a little more, and a new coach that isn't necessarily indebted to the player will tell you what's going on. Like it's, a, it's better for evaluation purposes. Well, it's also nice because all of those um, all those parks are so close to each other. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a good uh, – I'll usually go, uh, you know, get a week up there and run around, usually with Frankie telling me where the places to go and the pitch, pitching matchups to catch. And then I'll do, you know, five days with Team USA so you can see all the pitchers and now, that's see the guys take you Cary, Cary, North Carolina? They're based out of North Carolina. It kind of depends year to year where they're going to run. Last year they had like a stretch where they're in North Carolina for like six or seven days. So I went down there and, and saw their whole thing. And that's usually like June to August on the Cape. It's usually July is kind of the heyday for Team USA. And that's right when we have all of the high school showcases and the Futures game and all that's happening at once. So usually right in that June to July, August area, like I'll be at home like 10% of the days because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things to go to that all take a week. Do you, uh, do you get uh, quite a bit? What is it? What is your rewards? You got rewards? I, I go with the scouts to the Marriott's and okay, uh, yeah. I'll skew towards Southwest. Uh, but I'm, I, I don't, I don't think I fly enough to get a ton of flight rewards. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I'm, yeah, I'm doing okay on the Marriott front though. Okay. Uh, unrelated question. Am I going to see you in Arizona? You will. Okay, I have great. RSVP'd. Oh, very good. Yeah. All right. How good. about this? I just pulled up the University of Cincinnati alum page. Yeah. Uh, we got Josh Harrison, who I forgot about. Okay. Oh, yeah. This says Sandy Koufax went to Cincinnati. What's that? 
<laughs> I would not have guessed that in a million years. No, you don't think of him. Oh, definitely Cincinnati, Cindy Koufax. They're also a big leaguer named Skeeter Barnes. <laughs> okay. And Tony Campano, I feel like, would be a Sestouli favorite. Yeah, he's all right. I mean, uh... Yeah, it was the Sandy Koufax went to Cincinnati, according to the baseball cube. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, wow. So there you yeah. go. So they got some notable guys, but it's been a while. Yeah. There actually might have been... Uh... So uh, uh, one of my favorite poets is now late... Uh, no, deceased. He's dead, is what I mean. Oh, you say he's late. Was he going to be on the podcast? He's late. He's, he's supposed to be here. Yeah. He's late in the mortal sense. That's too uh, bad. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's bound to happen eventually. But he uh, he was also a Jewish person from Cincinnati, and uh, I was led to believe that there was. There, my point is that uh, that and, and also knowing that Sandy Koufax, I don't know if he was even from Cincinnati. Was he from Cincinnati? No, he was born in Brooklyn. Well, how did he yeah, end up at Cincinnati? Say. I don't know. Well, I this just is, learned this right now. Why would yeah, I know? Yeah, all right. Well, next next time we'll cover this in depth. Yeah. <laughs> Hard not, hitting. Yeah, not at the moment, but um, yeah, there might be a there might be a more substantive Jewish community in Cincinnati, or at least historically, uh, than you would have otherwise imagined. That sound you hear is everyone deleting this podcast. <laughs> Why? Why? I want to talk about I, what, who who pulled this up to listen to your analysis of Jewish people in Cincinnati. I just think, I'm not saying that, what it's fine. What what what's the problem? What you don't want to talk about Jewish people? I am not going to say anything. I uh, I if I have one regret in my life, it's that I was not born to a Jewish family. I will say this: when I lived in Pittsburgh working for the Pirates, uh, I lived in Squirrel Hill. Yeah. Which I am told has the highest density of Jewish people in America. Okay. This is just another another <laughs> continuing okay. data point. Yeah. Of, so of could you Jewish get like uh, I mean, with their available, with their like uh, foodstuffs that you might typically find? Like there um, was a there were many sort of Jewish themed uh, sort of uh, bookstores and kind of things. Mm-hmm. There was also I don't know if this was Jewish themed, but I always laughed uh, a gluten free snack shop. And this is like five years ago before gluten was a big thing yeah. called Gluteny. <laughs> Gluttony. Yeah. Like what, it rhymes with mutiny? Like gluttony. Oh, I get it. Now I'm getting it. Yeah. Now I'm I never it. went in there because it seemed like a bunch of weirdos, but yeah. I always love mediocre wordplay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're the king. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to baseball. <laughs> um, uh, oh, here, uh, just two, two questions about you. We're, we're already over half of this. Fantastic. Um, I want to yeah. <clears throat> ask a maybe, question about the not. Yankee system, Yeah. which is this. On the one hand, I think that you um, addressed more names in your post with, regarding the Yankee system than you had for any of the, the ones you've done previously. Is that true? I believe that is true. You invoked, invoked uh, let, me, let me Let me double check. But, yeah, I am. if it is not the most, it is very close to the most. Right. Yes. It was It was the longest honorable mentions – uh, they had they had the most just miss, the most pitcher, and the most hitter that were not just misses. They also had the most 40s and almost the most 45s. Okay. So, yeah, that's the longest. So, I, I, I mean, the answer to this question could be very easy, very logical, but it uh, could also be – could be, uh, require more depth for an explanation. And it's this. Um, the most names – just you said the, there were a bunch of superlatives there attached to that Yankee system among the, those that you've covered so far. And yet you also say that they're probably – I think you had them like 10th or 11th at this point in terms of – Yeah, um, I was 10th right now subject to change. But right, in terms of what – what that. do you call that? System – ranking the systems? Yes. Right. 
So could you just maybe provide a brief explanation as to what could seem like a little bit of a discordant um, arrangement of facts? On the one hand, they are the deepest. On the other hand, they're ranked 10th. Uh, yes. So this also happened with the Rays. The Rays are the second deepest, and they are 21st. So, so even sh- maybe more substantial there. I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, so for the Rays, they the difference is high level. So I, I wrote about this a little bit, where I gave a hypothetical farm system, two of them to compare, uh, with real names of players that aren't necessarily in the same system, just to illustrate the decision making process. But in that article, I explained I had this big grid, which I believe I've sent to you. If I haven't, I've sent it to almost everyone on the, on the staff except for you. Yeah. Well, um, no, but I think you included maybe an excerpt from it. Yeah. In one of your in one of the posts, I forget. The idea you're... is I'm I've given all these guys future values. So I have the down the left side of the column, I have uh, future values, and then across the top, I have the names of the teams, and then down the column, I have the players uh, grouped by future value. So. You start sort of with the Cubs at number one. They've got a 70, a 65, two 60s, a 55, and three 50s. That's a lot of high in town. I consider sort of 50 and up kind of, uh, or maybe 55 and up elite, 50 also right. pretty good. Sure, sure, sure. So they've got five sort of elite guys and then three more like kind of right there, and then they're pretty deep the rest of the way through. It's kind of tough to beat, especially with two guys in the top ten. Uh, and so then you sort of start moving down and you start seeing, you start trying to figure out how you balance different things. So like the Dodgers are a classic one where they have two 65s and a 60, Urias, Seeger, and Peterson at the top. And then it's pretty ordinary the rest of the way down. It's not a crazy amount of depth. They got 150, uh, a couple 45s, kind of, kind of normal. But then they have three of the top, you know, 15 guys in baseball and the top two are probably both in the top eight overall. So, so then what I start doing is you look at, say, I, like I have a fifth right now. You compare them to the team you have fourth, which is the Rangers. So the Rangers have a little more evenly spread out, 260s, 355s, 550s, and then, you know, like a nice depth all the way through. So then you start lining up, right, these guys are both 55s, we'll cancel them out, and you end up with the sort of discrepancies. And so right. then you say, all right, I've got Urias and Seeger, who are both better than anyone in the Rangers system, and then we have <laughs> – a 60, 355s, and 550s. So we have, what is that, eight players, nine players. Would you trade those nine players who are all 50s or better, all in the top 150 in baseball, if you had eight of those guys, or nine of those guys spread throughout the top 150, like starting from 30 and going to 150, would that get you two of the top 10 prospects? Probably not. I don't know. Like, I, no one's ever made a trade like that. So yeah, it's hard to judge it. <laughs> yeah, we want to give you like 10 guys. Yeah, and it's not like we're going to give you two good guys and then eight depth guys and eight ball. It's like we're going to give you ten guys on the list that everyone's looking at for, like, two of the best guys. If it's, you know, we'll give you five for two, it's no. If it's seven, it's, okay, we're listening. If it's ten, I'm like, I don't know, is that yes? But that's the only way to compare them. Uh, or else then you're saying, you know, compare the number one prospect, you know, big gap, and then compare the number four prospect, smaller gap. And then you have, like, all these different, you know, sort of marginal differences. I don't know how to compare those either. So I was using – sort of the cancel out system and then trying to construct a trade of the leftover players. But the problem is if you have a top heavy system and then a depth system that are of roughly equal quality, it's really hard to tell them apart. And so then you try to figure out other ways, which I haven't been able to figure out yet. And so I have them in a rough order that I've been quoting to people as they will ask, but there's still been so like today there's a trade. The Rockies traded a 45 uh, future value catcher to the Braves for a big leaguer. So the Braves just got an extra player. And since I sort of made this, uh, rough top 30 of the organizations, 
some guys have been traded. Some guys are getting shifted around as I'll move them in the top 100 and realize, oh, I had him as a 55. He's actually a 50. Uh, so I'm going to go back through it again after I post the top 100 and whatever and re-rank them. And it'll probably, you know, some teams will change by a couple spots from what I've been saying. But the underlying challenge is there's no right way to do this. And we have some leads. I've been talking to the Daves about some more objective ways to handle this, but that'll be for next year. And it's not going to be able to do any of that this year. Yeah, I was thinking, can you use any of the research uh, pertaining to, like, marginal value of prospects that's been done? Uh, the solution is to do our own, and that's why it'll be ready for next year. Okay. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. No, I understand. Things take time. Yeah, they do. Things take time. Um yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's interesting. That, that that answers my question. I mean, to a certain degree, there's a there's some finesse. And as you mentioned, I think it's there might not be. It might also matter on the organization, right? Maybe for some teams, there is value. I'm thinking yeah. probably like a team that has is going to have a lower payroll. If you can, like the Rays, they have a lot of likely big league contributors or low end everyday guys that'll be cheap for six years. They want that guy. But right. for instance, the Nationals or the Yankees, like they have a very high payroll. They need, they don't want a lot of 50s because they probably have some 55s on the roster already. And so they'd probably skew toward the high ceiling guys. And the Nationals have Giolito, who is arguably the top pitcher in all of the minor leagues. Right. And so one concern is if you take Giolito out of their system, I have them at 15th right now. They might be 20, like they're kind of standard normal mm-hmm. of the 20 to 30 system. And now they're 15th because of this one guy. But then when I was making sort of the comparisons between them and maybe a more a deeper system, uh, I'm like, oh, would they trade Giolito for da-da-da-da-da? And I was like, well, they wouldn't trade him. But I tried to think, would a normal team would that trade those players, which then further complicates it, which I don't think that should be a big factor, but it at least enters your mind when you're trying to figure out, you know, would they trade Giolito for six players in the top 100? No, but maybe they should. Um, okay, I want to move on to another question. It concerns... Ozino uh, Albies. <laughs> I, I I know that it concerns a player. It's, it's Albies, is what I've been told. Okay, Albies. All right. And I believe uh, it's Ozino. You do one more time. Ozino Albies is my best. Ozino Albies. I was looking just for a pronunciation guide quickly here. Baseball Reference usually has it, but um, he has uh, he's obscure enough that it's not it hasn't been not become an issue yet for them. Oh, it's about to change. Yeah. Well, yes, uh, Kyla McDaniel, no less an authority than Kyla McDaniel, uh, has ranked him first among all Atlanta prospects. And they will have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight players in the top 140 or whatever it is. Right. Right. So there you go. And this is a big, uh, um, I don't think, was it Albis? Albis? Albis. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school, uh, Kylie, when I suggest that Albies has been relatively anonymous, yeah. Yeah, uh, um, I'm, I don't know what Baseball America had him, but I don't. I think it was like six or seven. Like it, he's obviously on the radar. Like the prospect people know who he is, but he hasn't even played full season ball yet. So it's not the kind of guy most people are. You know, he's not the guy people are getting whipped up on. Uh, and I would say mostly because he's five nine, but also he hasn't played full season ball yet. But then if you want to, you know, sort of go the statistical route. His numbers are completely absurd for a guy that will stick at shortstop and is a 65 runner and was 17 playing against guys that were like 21. Right, right, and 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 uh, we we exchanged some emails the other day um, because uh, Chris Mitchell, of course, over at the Harbaugh Times, introduced a couple weeks ago, um, 
some the product of his methodology he calls Cato, uh, which is um, it's a, an homage to what is it Gustav Cato Gosuke Cato. <laughs> I just want to leave you flailing as long shut, as I can. Shut your fa- face. What is it Gosuke? <laughs> Yeah, it's Kasuke. Kasuke Kato. So he, he essentially started because he's like, I don't know if Kasuke Kato was good or not. Also, was... Kato is, I believe, the uh, uh, the the Asian character in Green Hornet, right? I don't know that. I'm I don't know sure, that. I mean, yeah, well, it, he is. He was also a Roman He was statesman. portrayed by Bruce Lee on the TV show. The point is... He, it's not spelled um, the same, though. He, right. He's also a Roman statesman. <laughs> we are the worst. The the um, so Cato uh, thinks very highly. So looking at those metrics, um, which are most predictive, even for the low miners of uh, future major league success, and then probably the most important metric is age, right? If a guy yep. handles his business and he is, as you mentioned, uh, two or three years younger, which he was uh, in both of his leagues last year at rookie level. Then that's uh, that's crazy, right? I mean, that's that's usually the hallmark of a player who will go on and have success. But the obviously, as you would guess, the list of players that have had performances like that at a relatively young age in the low minors or even short season uh, and not had any big league success is much longer than it is of guys at Double A doing that at twenty. Like, I think the worst player that's been like really good at age twenty in Double A is like Delman Young. Right. What about Andy Marte? Yeah, no, I'm not sure how young he was, but I, yeah, he's he's another one of those uh, those guys, guys who were just like, like Dallas McPherson. Yeah, there's been some right guys who were just they were monsters in in the minor leagues and appropriate relative to their age, and then they just uh, yeah yeah uh, Andy Marte was a full season double A as a 20 year old and was uh, very good, you know, very good, and was even better the next year as a 21 year old at triple A. And I don't necessarily know what the park effects are for for all those seasons, but you know, at a certain point, it doesn't matter. It's like, listen, he's, he's, <laughs> this guy's hitting homie. Yeah, he's hitting homie. Um, what it do, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I didn't, I don't think I laughed until you said it. So we've got we've got a clean one there. I can use that later. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah. All right. So that's I just wanted to talk about obvious what what sort of factors contributed to you. Uh, it sounds like I saw you writing about some of his comps. One of them was what a weaker armed for, for call or a uh, what a slightly slightly shorter Francisco Lindor. Francisco Lindor. What do you think and about? I, and the... I'll admit my uh, my ranking on uh, on Albies is it's speculative in that uh, I made him a sixty, which puts him in comfortably in the top fifty of my top one hundred and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am doing that because I think he's going to have a crazy good year next year because it's kind of hard to do what he did last year and not do something in that ballpark this year. Yeah. And so I think once he does that, he will belong here and everyone will have him here. And mm-hmm. I'm just saying, I think this is going to happen. And so by the middle of next season, he'll be, you know, in like the midseason top 50s, he'll be on everyone's list. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to do it first. I fully realize that the performance track record isn't there to put him ahead of you know, I have, I'm trying to, I've had a David Dahl, like David Dahl is hit more and has a longer track record and people know him and stuff, but I think Albies will be on everyone's scorecard ahead of him. And by this, you know, this time next year and maybe even by the middle of the season. And the other thing is, uh, everyone, like I've been sitting around my list getting opinions 
And I don't know, maybe a third of the players on the list, I've had someone say move him up, move him down, or, you know, think about maybe this factor with him. And it'll be a guy on the third team. He has no reason to be hyping the guy or whatever. No one's told me to move up. He's down yet. And I have him like 30 spots higher than anybody's going to put him. And they're all like, I love him. That's a lot of love, but I love him. I was like, would you move him down? He's like, no, I think he's fine there. They're just like letting you know you're going to get a little fleck there. And I was like, that's okay. This is a guy I'm, I, I don't mind being out there for. Right. Well, shortstops who can hit. That's what you yeah, want. Yeah, and, and then the other one, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but the other notable players that come out of Curacao in the last you know handful of years, and then Aruba, which is almost – it's right next to Curacao. Yeah. Xander Bogarts, Jerks and Profar, Andrelton Simmons, Jonathan Scope. Those are like the four players just a little older than him that came out of there. Uh, pretty good track record, I'd say, of super toolsy guys that can hit and play a position. Well, I remember thinking about this during uh, dur- during the most recent uh, World Baseball Classic because you'd say, well, they have four shortstops. Profar and Simmons are probably the two best pitchers ever to come off the island, and they have never pitched in pro ball. Is that right? They both are in the mid to upper 90s. <laughs> really? Simmons was almost drafted as a pitcher. He was like up to 98 in junior college, and Profar was – I think up to 94, 95 as a 15 or 16 year old and teams were considering making him a pitcher. Some teams thought he was better as a pitcher. Well, yeah, what happened to Jerickson? Did he get injured last year? Yeah. Hmm. He was, uh, he looked like an infallible prospect for a brief time. Not that there is uh, any such thing. Probably should strike that thought from my head, but. <laughs> it's the unsinkable ship, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let's get to go. I have to move along here and, uh, I'm going to enjoy dinner, uh, with my wife at some point in the near future. That's uh, not how you say that. Uh, it, it, you know what? You know what? It is how I say it. Oh, Kyle, no. It is it's how I say it. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm not going to be bullied around anymore. I'll tell you how I say it. Wife. Wife. <laughs> Wife. I'm, I'm glad your Italian is finally coming through. The, uh, uh, you, uh, it's, it's, you for once, I think maybe this might have been a, a, a brief moment. You suggested that perhaps, um, some of the, um, an experiment I had conducted with regard to applying um, numbers or metrics to minor leaguers, uh, some of it might have actually had some merit for once. <laughs> I was surprised too. <laughs> uh, of course, yesterday I I was doing some research on um, hypothetically what if there was uh, wins above replacement for minor leaguers or at least minor league hitters. And, uh, and I think that it seems to me the thing that surprised you was – that among the leaders wasn't just like a bunch of AAA journeymen. It was yeah, actual prospects. Well, yeah, and why do you think that was? Why, why was there not some 4A guy or some guy in the Cowlick that's 26 that had a bunch of home runs? It doesn't really matter from a prospect perspective. Mike, well, one of the things I think is probably because there is – because if you're including the positional adjustment – and Yeah, and I guess to a lesser degree base running. Right. Like a lot of times, those guys, the reason they're still in AAA is because they're not particularly athletic. I guess that's true. And when, when I'm thinking about the guys that are not really prospects but hit a ton, it's always the the fat guy that plays DH. Right. <clears throat> right. And so it's it's really hard. It's really hard to provide value um, if you have the, the the DH penalty. Because you just have to, you have to hit so much. And if there's someone, if there's a young prospect, right, who does have some defensive upside, but is also hitting a lot, you know, I mean, that's this thing with Chris Bryant, right? I like, I don't know. I think you've been, I I think, I remember you from your ratings. It seems like you have him somewhere between a 45 and a 50 third baseman. Is that about right? Yes. Okay. People that have given him a fair look think there's still a chance it works. Okay. Right. And so, 
with the with the methodology I used, you get you're just getting the generic positional adjustment without any anything else. So the thing is, oh, there's no defensive value, right? So there's no defensive value. <clears throat> so it's just it's all. But what if that quad A guy really fields DH well? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, but my point is, so if Chris Bryant doesn't work out, then probably one of the reasons he doesn't work out is because he's not a third baseman. So you look at him a couple years from now, and he's a guy playing first base in the minors, and you know maybe he's still hitting the same amount, but that's going to hurt his value, right? Yeah, although he still runs pretty well, so he would be an outfielder. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. But yes. Right. Right. I mean, some some teams said if they drafted him, they would start him in center field. Really? Yeah, he was like he was like he's one of those. Him and Aaron Judge are both probably like I'd say Judge is an average runner and Bryant's maybe fringy, but they're both like sort of above average once they get going. They're, like right. they probably ran better when they were sort of skinnier and in high school and stuff like that. Is this like a young Corey Hart too? I what Corey does this Hart, have to do with sunglasses at night? I Corey Hart, I believe, had a reputation for um, having at least. Speed underway. Was yes, the, that's typical with I think the long-legged types. It takes a they don't have a quick first step because it's not necessarily the uh, the small, compact, quick twitchy type. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're athletic enough that once they get those legs churning at a high rate, it, it works. Right, it works, yeah. it's it's like how uh, a guy that's six seven can throw as hard as Billy Wagner, but Billy Wagner looks better because it's his arms faster because his arm is shorter. It has to be faster. Like Albie's legs have to move so much faster than Chris Bryant's to just go the same speed. Right. That he just looks faster. Right. Do you think that, uh, it's physics. Do you think that finds its way into, uh, scouts reports and without them knowing? Yeah, quick arm is usually synonymous with small guy that throws hard. Okay. Uh, you might have you a, hear a lot of, you don't hear about a lot of six, six quick arms. Right. Hard to have a quick arm, but you don't need a quick arm because you well, have, yeah, your you, fingers are so far away from your body. You'd be like Joel Zumaya if you're a big guy with a quick arm, you're throwing a gazillion miles an hour. Right. And your arm will, Will separate Detach. itself from your body, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I just want to ask you about a couple guys. I think you've covered elsewhere who appear on the list, but are not necessarily. I mean, Chris Bryant, Corey Seager, Jock Peterson. Uh, those are top prospects. In addition to being to having performed very well last year, they're also top prospects. Um, one player. Let's see. Oh yeah, was the was Carlos Osahe. Aswahe. I believe it is a Swahe. A Swahe. He's a Red Sox prospect who, between Class A and High last year, was a 22-year-old. Uh, good season. Yeah. Um, and he was a late pick. And he's also tiny. He's he's Albie's size. Oh, yeah. Look at that. He is. Yeah, yeah. And he's not – it looks like he's not a shortstop. Is that true? He is a second baseman. You're right. Okay. Uh, w- but he made, he made the Red Sox list. He did, yeah, right, exactly. He went, yeah. he went from an 11th rounder in 2013 to on the list in 2014. Which is considerable because if if you knew that, you would probably if the club knew that, they would have drafted him higher. That's true. And the funny thing is he actually hit well on the Cape and was got on the radar because of that because he went to either a D2 or D3 college in Miami, Nova Southeastern, and uh, hit a good bit there. But it was like, oh, he's a 5'9 second baseman without a lot of power that's only a fringe runner. Like, come on, how good could this possibly be? And and then sometimes we're like he hit on the cape like we know he's gonna hit like he'll get to double A at least let's uh let's see if there's a little more there yeah. and it turns out there's a little more power than people expected and he's probably a little better fielder than people expected and he's definitely hit more so mm-hmm. now it was it was a sort of some subtle changes to being a little better than people expected and now he's kind of a dude like he'll probably be a good you know sort of fan favorite a little utility guy 
Okay. All right. So, so along the lines of the Ronald Torrieas and Tony Kemp with the Astros, L- little dudes that hit and don't necessarily do a whole lot more, but they uh, they get the most out of it. Right. And they uh, do, you, do you, is Altuve that sort of player for you? I mean, I understand his reputation. He's very short and he hits a lot. Uh, but <laughs> Not only he, by reputation, in actuality, he's really short. Right. But is he does he fit into that class, or does his speed sort of make a difference for him? Yeah, he's the speed and a little more bat speed and like 80 bat control. And But I think when he was coming up, when he was an A-ball about where Suahe was, I think it was probably like, yeah, don't put him at the end of the list. Put him like toward the middle, but it's we're not sure what this is yet because there are a little more tools there. But yeah, it wasn't amazingly different. Right. Uh, another player on the list was, well, you just mentioned him, is Tony Kemp. Uh, Who, by the way, the Astros really like. Like, I put him toward the end of that list, but it sounds like they'd have him near the middle. They think there might be something there. Right. And it, interesting, we really have settled upon short second baseman at this point. I think that's more you, but go ahead. Well, no, my point, like, it's it's almost as though, with regard to this list, these guys, if I ha- if so if you take someone like me, who has certainly an interest in prospects, but not encyclopedic knowledge of them, and if, if it, the players that I have not heard of, uh, who finished well by this, you know, by this methodology? It's they are typically short. They're short, and that you know, and maybe because they they lack something in the way of physical tools, and that's what's kept them, you know, away well, from the most. I have, I have a theory about this. Okay. Uh, players, and I've mentioned this in Albies report. Players that peak early mm-hmm. tend to be smaller. Tend to be sort of like, uh, well, this probably isn't related. Actors tend to be really small because they say the camera puts on weight. Mm-hmm. And so if you're like really small and compact, you tend to look better when there's a crazy close up on you. You don't look fat yeah. like an average person probably would. Uh, I don't know why I thought of that, but smaller players, like they don't have like growing into their limbs and putting on weight and figuring out what they're going to look like and being all gangly and Hunter Pence like, like they don't have that stage. So Aswahe was like getting to college and he was like 19 or 20 and was like, I'm going to go to Cape and rake my face off because that's what I do and that's all I can do. And then those guys are forced to work on stuff, which is like the, you know, sort of the grinder mentality. Like, oh, he gets the most out of his tools because he hasn't had any like tools to develop. His tools were set like five years ago. (laughs) He's just trying to figure out what he can do with this stuff. And so they're going to, I think, be the better performers in A-ball. And then you're going to have your sort of Aaron Judges and guys who don't even really perform close to where they should until they're like 21 or 22 and they kind of come into their own. And then they'll, you know, shoot through the minors or whatever. But the little dudes will – and those are – going back to the college conversation, typically the guys that these colleges like Florida that are targeting those fifth to eighth round guys, the guys that they will get to commit as freshmen are not the guys they think are going to be first-round picks – it's the guys that look like Carlos Aswahe where they're like, there's no way this guy will ever go in the top five rounds because he's short, but he looks right now like he's going to look as a senior in high school so we can feel confident that he's not going to change. Did, does some of that apply to Nolan Fontana? Yeah. Um, he's not, I don't think he's as small, but he did seem to have... He was right in that range out of high school where some teams were thinking about paying him, but it was like, uh, he doesn't really have the tools for shortstop. He might have the instincts to make it work, but he's a smaller guy. He doesn't have a ton of bat speed. And then it turned out in college he has really good play discipline, which you might not be able to see in high school. And then he performed a lot, and they're like, okay, this guy can probably at least play shortstop for a while. He's definitely a second baseman if he can. He can run a little bit, a little bit of pop, and he's got really good play discipline. It's sort of like a Swahe, like – there's not a ton here, but he's going to get the most out of it. And there's big leaguers with less tools than this, so there's probably something. Right, and and uh, this is probably the last guy about about whom I ask. Uh, um, you you invoked earlier in the conversation how the Tampa Bay Rays will typically target players who are likely to have 
major league value, even if the upside is not crazy high. Uh, another one of the players on this. Well, also the guys there, like these times, like teams aren't trading Addison Russell that often. All right. So it's not like they can really go after the elite guy, but yeah, they're, they're gonna, if they're gonna be trading for guys that are 45s and 50s, they'll skew toward the more sure, higher level guy. Um, a player for whom they did trade this offseason was Andrew Velasquez. Yes. And I don't know if he fits the same profile, but he, yep, pr- he does. He produced a lot. I saw, I saw a video, I looked at the video of him, I think you had linked in, um, the Tampa Not very Bay much Rangers. out there. <laughs> he is, he is a, he is a little guy. Yeah, I listed at 5A175. Okay. Now, does he have actual speed, or is he sort of more instinctual? 60 speed, might be able to play shortstop, and has a little bit of pop, and obviously he's performed a lot. He was, I believe I wrote this in the report, he wasn't even turned in by some teams, and when the D-backs took him, like, their scout was the only guy, like, really on him at all. Uh, so, like, when he got signed, I remember I talked to some guys with the Rays, and I was like, yeah, I have him here on the list after you guys just traded for him. They're like, yeah, that's about right. Kudos to their guy. Our, I mean, our guy knew who he was. He'd seen him before, but we didn't really have him anywhere close to where he'd be able to sign him. And uh, and their guy, Todd Donovan, like really really figured that one out and nailed this guy. Is Todd Donovan still there? I believe so. Okay. I do yeah. not know. Because they had some uh, turnover, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this guy uh, in just left, too. Hey, I want to ask you about one other guy. Oh, yeah. You mentioned players who reached their upside, smaller players. Um, it I was uh, let's see. I became acquainted with an outfielder in the Yankee system. Of course, you wrote about the Yankee system last week. Um, uh, Ramon Flores, who I think is playing in one of the, he was playing in winter ball this this winter. Uh, he's a player you said has basically like reached his upside already. Is that does that have to do? Is that a similar idea that, as, as some of these uh, other smaller players you're discussing? Oh wait, hold on. Uh, you'll find this uh, interesting. Todd Donovan now works for the race. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that. Oh, so I guess it wasn't as funny when the Rays guys were praising Todd Donovan because he worked for the Rays. <laughs> oh, okay. He left. He left uh, right around when the trade happened, December twelfth, twenty fourteen. We have a Nick Picoro story saying that he left. And then when does the, when did the trade happen? I think the trade happened right before that. Oh, okay. So they're like, oh, might as well get the agent, the agent who signed him as well. You mean this guy? But yes, that's what I meant. That's what Sorry, I meant. What was this question? Uh, Ramon Flores, a Yankees yeah. prospect, who's. I remember uh, having this exact conversation with the Yankees guy after I saw him in high A. Which was? He was, I want to say, 19 in high A, and he was another guy, like, really hitting. And uh, when he was like, oh, what do you got on him? And I was like, he looks like a fourth outfitter. He's like, he's, like, hitting like crazy in here two years younger than all the other, like, prospects and, like, three and four years younger than most of the other guys. Uh, yeah, that season, 2012 in high A, hit 302, 370, 420 in a full season. Uh, 24 stolen bases and six homers. It was like, you don't think he can start? I was like... Well, no, like, it, it's like kind of average bat speed. It's like fringy power. He's like a fringe runner that can't really play center, although he was playing center at the time. So I'm like, he's the prototypical, like, fourth outfielder. Like, he can play right, left, and center. You don't really want him in center, but he can fill in. He can make contact, but he doesn't really have the tools to be an above-average hitter, but he has really good feel for the bat head and, the, and for play discipline. So he'll probably have, like, decent on base, probably like a 260, 340 guy with, like, 10 homers, which is, like, the exact thing that you're looking for in a fourth outfielder. And he was like, I don't know, he's just hitting at 19. And I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> we're not we're not just scouting the, the stat line here. I just don't think there's anything else. And now he's a triple A, and he looks like the same guy. And uh, he could still become a 50. Like, that that guy could be right. Maybe maybe he finds out a way to hit 10, 12 or 15 homers, and it turns out he's above average in the outfield, and he hits like 280 with 360 on base, and he's an everyday guy. Uh, but you'd, you'd probably be wrong if you make a case of trying to grab guys like this and say they're going to be 50s because it's, you know, maybe one out of 10 or one out of eight or something like that. But yeah, he's that, he's that kind of guy. And he was, he, 
I think he peaked tools-wise early, and I think he was very advanced for his age. And I think that's in part because he's not that big. He's like 5'11", 180, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And we, we have him listed at actually even 5'10 at the site. So. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm saying so even, even maybe a little shorter. So. And second base is like the fourth outfielder of the infield. It's like not quite good enough to play the position everyone wants you to play. You don't have the power to really play a corner, so we'll act like you play up the middle, but – like it's a similar profile. So it really is a. It is a, the position of misfit, uh, misfit players, isn't it? You find a lot of body types at second base. I feel like too. Yeah, and scouts will also say that uh, I forgot who it was. Oh, it was a Hanser Alberto, and the uh, Ranger system was a just missed guy. And scouts were telling me he's not a five. He can't hit enough, or yeah, he can't hit enough. Doesn't have enough power to be a five. Speaking of like a fifty future value second baseman. And nobody carries a backup second baseman. So if you're a four, you're actually a three. And three is like emergency up-down guy, 25th guy on the roster. Right. Uh, if you're, you know, sort of like the best hitter that's uh, that's in AAA, you get to be the last guy on the roster. But you're like, you know, so you'd like for that guy to be able to play short, and he can't. And so these, that's sort of the fourth outfielder gets squeezed out of a spot, and the second baseman gets squeezed out of a roster spot if he's not a 50. Right. Hey, Kylie, uh, very good. All of it, very good. I still feel like people aren't going to like this, but uh, we'll, we'll find something entertaining don't later. Don't worry about it. We, it was a nice conversation. You know, it was pleasant conversation. I, what's the problem? I don't know. I guess I just have high expectations for myself, Carson. We can talk about that off air. Well, if it makes you feel better, other people don't have them for you. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, well, let's say goodbye. I'll talk to you for one moment after that, and then uh, we'll go our separate ways. Uh, but thank you. Uh, thank you, Kyle McDaniel. Thank you, Carson Sestouli. That has been uh, Kyle McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Carson Sestouli has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.